BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. When I was in high school, I was part of this group called the LA Student Coalition. We sat in at the South African consulate to protest apartheid, marched to demand funding for AIDS research. But on this week's show, we're going to hear how the activism of today's high schoolers takes things to another level. We've got an audio diary from a young climate activist worried about the very future of our planet. When it comes to the fight for your life, you are never alone in wanting to keep the earth alive, keep a future alive. And we'll learn about the courageous young women who spoke up to accuse their teacher of being a sexual predator. I'm outraged that while we claim to have safety protocols set in place to ensure the safety of our students, the only protocol set on my campus that has ever kept me safe is word of mouth. Lots of surveys show people who are Gen Z, born between 1996 and 2012, think the biggest challenge we're facing right now is climate change. We're going to meet one teen climate leader in Los Angeles named Paula Hoffman. KCRW reporter Kaylee Wells followed Paula for months, collecting audio diaries and capturing her speeches at climate protests, her testimony before the state legislature, and her high school graduation— all while Paula carried the weight of the world's future on her shoulders. Hi, everyone. I'm Paula Hoffman. I'm an organizer with Youth Climate Strike Los Angeles, and I'm just going to be talking for a quick moment about why we're here today. There are tons of people who are willing to show up. You just need people to host the strikes. You need people to put that information into the world, and then other people will follow suit because people do care and people do want to learn. And this generation especially is very passionate about living and having a future. Hi, um, it's Paula. Uh, I was just playing guitar and then figured I should probably check in. Um, Currently in my room at my desk, I have brought my food upstairs so I can work on finishing up two videos. They also conveniently ignored how large pension funds in New York, Maine, Ireland, the UK, Baltimore, the Netherlands have all divested safely. Um, We're still working to get SB 1173 through as many different Senate hearings as we can. SB 1173 would require that two of the state and nation's largest public pension funds in their respective areas divest from fossil fuels. Next Tuesday is the next one, and we have the Judiciary Committee that's meeting. Your line line is open. Please go ahead. Hi, my name is Paula. I'm with Youth Climate Strike Los Angeles, and we strongly support SB 1173. Thank you. I hope 
that one day the bill will get far enough that I can actually smile about it. But I'm just so exhausted. People don't think we're going to be able to get the California Senate Retirement Committee, but we got them, but it's just after that another committee and onto another committee and onto another committee, and it doesn't stop. Okay, so that is a three uh, to one vote um, with one abstention, and so the bill is out. Hey, this is Paula. I am currently working on writing a speech. Tomorrow is Earth Day, or Earth Crisis Day, as we have been preparing for, and yeah, I'm gonna have a very long day, and then the next day I have um, my prom. (laughs) I'm going with a bunch of friends, we're really excited. Because despite all of this, I'm somehow still a high schooler, and it's my senior prom. That's crazy. Hello everyone, my name is Paula Hoffman. I'm an organizer with Youth Climate Strike Los Angeles. We're here today at UCLA because we are begging the UC system to care. Not to just say carbon offsets and we love the earth, but to actually do something real. I feel really good. Um, There's a good kind of tired after these kinds of events because you're exhausted, but you feel like maybe there's a chance that this time things will go better. Hey, it's Paula. I just woke up from a dream where the world ended. Yeah, that's a fun way to start my day. I was trying to think what might have caused the nightmare. And all I can think about is we just had elections, the primary elections in LA. And last I went to sleep, I had checked to see what the results were looking like. And it kind of felt like a punch in the gut. And then I went to sleep and I saw the world ending. (laughs) I I guess I have some good news. I recently spoke on the Changist panel. They were holding a summit over three days and I got to present. Hi, uh, my name is Paula. I'm with Youth Climate Strike Los Angeles. Thank you so much for having us here. I have a question for y'all in terms of like, what type of, I guess, advice do you have for young people that are getting their information about climate change on social media and how social media can also help them get involved. It's scary to think that you care alone, but you never care alone. And it's so easy to be tricked into thinking you care alone because of the way that things echo around online and the way that things echo around in the news. You're never alone. Um, When it comes to the fight for your life, you are never alone in wanting to keep the earth alive, keep a future alive. Hi, this is Paula. I am so angry right now, I don't even know what to do with it. Our bill is dead. You know, you see people marching in the streets and you think with that many people, surely, surely we can get something done. But not when you have big oil fossil fuel corporations with their hands directly in politics. They do have the power to directly shut things down. It's hard to remember to feel happy about what you've done. You just feel so small. Really tired of feeling small. Alright, that's all I've got for now. Paula Hurst Hoffman. It's surreal to graduate in general, just being on that stage, singing our graduation song, hearing our names get called, walking across. 
And I got an award this year, and I won it for my work with both Teen Line and Youth Climate Strike Los Angeles. That was pretty incredible. I'm really sad that I'm not going to be in the L.A. area anymore, especially now I feel like I've created such a close bond. I'm going to go to Houston. Um, I'm going to go to Rice University, and I'm going to... Well, I'm currently dedicated to study astrophysics, but sometimes I feel guilty about it because how am I going into the sciences but not the science that we need right now to save the Earth? We need to demonstrate the power of what happens when the youth and intersectional movements are united because we are the generation that is rising up to vote and rising up to make our voices heard. That audio diary from 18-year-old climate activist Paula Hoffman was produced and reported by KCRW's Kaylee Wells. Here on our show, we've brought you several stories about high schoolers across California who've been speaking out against sexual harassment and abuse from their peers as part of the Me Too movement. But there's also this disturbing pattern of cases emerging where teachers are being accused of harassing and grooming high schoolers especially high school girls. We're going to talk about this trend now with Matt Drange, who's a senior correspondent at Business Insider. For a recent story, he went back to his own high school in Rosemead in the San Gabriel Valley. The title of his article, He Was My High School Journalism Teacher, Then I Investigated His Relationship with Teenage Girls. Hey there, Matt. Hey, Sasha. Thank you for having me. Matt, I want to start by asking you to read us the intro to this story, and just a warning that the content might be upsetting for some listeners. Something was off. It was a hot July day, and the classroom at Rosemead High School should have been empty. But when a security guard swung open the door to let several students in to collect supplies, she noticed the motion sensor lights didn't turn on. A man's voice called out from the darkness, Oh, I was just looking for some books. Startled, the guard recognized Eric Burgess, the longtime teacher, kneeling on the floor. As her eyes adjusted from the sunlight outside, she made out the outline of a young girl who appeared to be hiding behind Burgess. And it turns out this teacher was engaging in sexual behavior with this girl. She was a recent graduate and had been his student. Yes, that's right. What led you to start investigating your own high school journalism teacher, Eric Burgess? It was actually another story that had nothing to do with my high school that spurred all of this. It was an article uh, published in The Oregonian about a teacher at a high school there who for decades had gotten the benefit of the doubt with all sorts of questionable uh, behavior and misconduct, often of a sexual nature involving teenage girls and students. I read the story and I just thought, gosh, you know, is there someone like this at my school who also got the benefit of the doubt? And when I started making some phone calls and requesting disciplinary records from the school, I quickly realized that, yes, there are several people who have probably gotten the benefit of the doubt and perhaps none more so than my teacher, Eric Burgess. What was it like for you when you were Eric Burgess's student? I thought of him, I think, like most of my classmates did. He was sort of like a cool uncle figure, if you will. You know, um, he was often joking in the classroom. He loved to tell your mom jokes. Um, He really, really pushed boundaries and, and loved to do pranks and would, would uh, upload his pranks to YouTube. And go! Oh, whoa, cheater! <laughs> I, I liked him, you know, I was fond of him. I thought he was funny and, and you know, I knew that 
I could also trust him with things that maybe I couldn't tell other teachers. But was there anything when you look back that made you think, huh, maybe that behavior wasn't really okay, especially when it came to to young girls? At the time, this didn't really stand out to me. But I did know when I was a student that, um, or at least that there was this rumor that Eric Burgess had fathered a child with a former student. It was really common knowledge among students that that had happened. You heard from a lot of experts about child abuse, especially with this concept of grooming and looking at how Eric Burgess groomed young girls who were his students. The grooming behavior that I describe in the story, you know, for example, with the, the girl uh, who in the beginning of the story we just we just read was, was having sex with Eric Burgess just a few weeks after she graduated. You know, he first suggested to the girl, hey, you should join journalism. She, she didn't even know what journalism was. He was overseeing the student newspaper, the newspaper that I was on, and he suggested that she join it um, her sophomore year. He helped her fill out her schedule. Um, he really gained her trust, and she confided in him um, really traumatic things in her own life, um, abuse that she suffered at home. That kind of behavior, that grooming behavior, um, is unfortunately very common. You know, the, the, the types of behavior that he did that could be seen as caring for students and, and really trying to help and nurture them. And um, often that kind of behavior is really the precursor to the grooming itself. Yet his behavior went unchecked for years. I mean, did school officials have an inkling what was going on? Yeah, so we detailed 20 years, um, really throughout his entire career almost, Uh, of red flags and inappropriate behavior. At several points, um, various folks um, tried to alert uh, principal, um, assistant principals, uh, district officials of inappropriate behavior and of these relationships. And time and again, the officials either did a very cursory investigation and, and, you know, tried to, to interview one or two people and didn't get anywhere and called it a day, or just ignored red flags and allegations altogether. As far as the response, you know, to my story, you know, at this point, the school still um, hasn't uh, apologized to any of the current students, which has upset quite a lot of people in the, in the campus community. They uh, haven't really directly uh, or in any kind of substantial way responded to anything in, the, in my reporting. Eric Burgess actually made a great effort to try to control the story. You got a hold of some voicemails that he left for one of the young women, the one the campus security guard caught him with in the part of the article that you read for us. The reporter that's been interviewing, his name is Matt Drange, um, thinks that um, we were dating when you were a sophomore and that uh, you wore my sweatshirt, my, my Panther's Hill hoodie, um, and that's proof that things were going on. Um, I don't know who's talking to who. I don't know. I know that there was a private investigator um, on campus. So, you know, I, I should say when I, when I first heard um, that voicemail, I was, I was stunned. I mean, it really shows the level of manipulation and uh, coercion that Eric Burgess had with his, his students. Um, in this case, the young girl who um, he groomed for three years and was, was in a sexual relationship with him almost the moment after she graduated. And so, you know, when he was leaving her these messages, this was at the point where the school had just opened their investigation in the spring of 2019. And you could really hear um, in the messages and in his own words, sort of his level of desperation get ratcheted up as the messages um, continued over a period of several weeks. I know that they're, they're definitely trying to fire me. 
Um, and I don't know if there's going to be more. I don't know because it's again, if they think that you were singing when you were a sophomore, then um, obviously they're going to file a police report and I'm going to get arrested. So um, if there's again, you know, there's any any way that if that if that comes up, uh, obviously be honest with them, but you know, don't. I mean, I'm still trying to to make it seem like nothing happened at all after after you graduated. So. Um, but I don't know what the is going on. Still nobody's contacting me. All right. <sighs> My life is imploding. So what happened to Eric Burgess after all of this came to light? Yeah, so, you know, when, at the time when these voicemails were left, this particular student, you know, had, had been um, covering for and lying for Eric Burgess for many months. Um, and she continued to do that until um, she finally spoke with me and told me the truth. That was in July of 2019. Um, and shortly after that, she decided, you know what, I'm, I'm done lying for him. Um, and I think for her, that decision was really spurred by the knowledge of me telling her that she wasn't the only one that there were other students as well. So when I told her about these other women, about uh, some of the various red flags, she began cooperating with the district. And ultimately what happened is when she provided these voicemails, text messages, emails, photos, um, it became clear that Eric Burgess had obstructed and tried to obstruct the district's investigation of his relationship with her. Um, and so the district was able to get him to agree to a separation agreement in which he was barred from working at the district ever again. Um, and that was in December of 2019. I should say, too, you know, the L.A. Sheriff's Department has opened a criminal investigation. And how have current students at the school responded? So after the story came out, um, you know, hundreds of students um, actually walked out of class um, in protest, uh, demanding that the school take action to ensure their safety and ensure that someone like Eric Burgess doesn't abuse students again. And a few days after that, there was a, a very emotional school board meeting where the article came up during the public comment period, which began with a current student who just graduated. Her name is Sitlali Palacios, and she is the uh, newspaper editor of the student newspaper, which she joined um, when she was a freshman, um, when Eric Burgess was the advisor before he was put on leave. Um, and she spoke out, and really, I think, in a, in a very gut-wrenching way. I'm outraged that while we claim to have safety protocols set in place to ensure the safety of our students, the only protocol set on my campus that has ever kept me safe is word of mouth. It's having friends tell you which teacher is the easy grader, or which teacher has a short temper, or which teacher has to avoid because he takes too long of a prolonged look at your legs. So, of course, Matt, this is one story about one high school, one teacher in Southern California. But you've received hundreds of responses from people across the country saying that this story resonates with them. Yeah, I would say 99% of readers um, have responded to the story with some version of, oh my gosh, this reminds me of, and then they fill in the blank. You know, this idea that there's a teacher who's well-liked on campus um, and who maybe uh, grooming young girls for relationships. Um, typically, they're, they're male teachers. Sometimes they're, they're female teachers as well. But the idea that, that teachers would take advantage of that 
position as trusted adults um, is something that so many readers uh, have have been able to relate to far more than I ever thought um, possible. In part two, because you know I told it in the first person. This was my school. This was my teacher, and I think people can relate to that as well. They they think, gosh, you know, was this something that I I saw or got glimpses of when I was a student? Did, did I see some of this as well? Well, and of course, this is a very personal story for you too, and I imagine that made it difficult to report. There's also some poetic justice, right, in the fact that the person who taught you how to ask tough questions as a journalist ended up being the focus of your investigation years later. It certainly is ironic in some ways. You know, he actually, I think, sort of alluded to that himself um, when he reached out to me um, on Facebook around the time that he was leaving those voicemails for that young woman. Uh, but he said, I, I suppose a man's got to do what a man's got to do to make his mark on the world. Um, I didn't quite understand what he meant by that, but I, I think, you know, now I think he was sort of referring to, like you said, that sort of poetic um, aspect of this, where he was my, my journalism teacher. Um, but you're right, Sasha. I mean, the story was, was very difficult to report. You know, probably the most difficult story I've ever reported, not... Not from the aspect of that reporters run into a lot, you know, which is getting documents and gaining trust in the community and all these things that are very difficult, but really because he was close to me, he was close to my family. You know, my he helped my brother through a difficult time in his life. And for a lot of my friends who read the article, um, you know, some, several of whom I'm still close with today, they told me that reading it really destroyed a piece of their childhood. You know, this is my community, so... The people that I talked to for the story, the, the people in the story, they're not just sources, they're, they're friends, they're, they're friends of friends, they're um, people who I knew before I was a reporter. Um, and that's been, um, that's been on my mind a lot, and, and it, it continues to, to be in my mind as I, as I report this next story, which um, will be published um, in the coming months, which will detail uh, a lot more and, and essentially show that what I reported about Eric Burgess was just the tip of the iceberg at Rosemead High. Matt Drange, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. Matt Drange is a senior correspondent with Business Insider. His recent article about Rosemead High is called He Was My High School Journalism Teacher, Then I Investigated His Relationship with Teenage Girls. to close out our show, we've got another stop on our California road trip series, Hidden Gems. This week, Amanda Font takes us to the San Bernardino Mountains, to Big Bear Lake, to board a pirate ship. There are plenty of businesses that offer trips on Big Bear Lake, but for those seeking a more unique ride, there's the Time Bandit. It's a one-third replica of the uh ship from about 200 years ago, 250 years ago. This is the man who will be at the helm today. My name is John Height. I'm one of the captains on the Time Bandit on Big Bear Lake. Captain John says the mini Spanish galleon was built by a guy in San Diego, in his backyard. He started building it in 1955. His original goal was to sail it to the Sea of Cortez. He completed it in 1969, but uh, lost interest in it along the way and never put it in the water. Instead, this hand-built dream vessel became a tour vessel, 
first in Newport Harbor down in Orange County, then it sat around for a while, and eventually it was shipped almost 7,000 feet up the mountain to Big Bear, where it's been cruising the lake for the last 25 years. But in the middle of its life, this boat had another kind of adventure. Okay, so hey, I mentioned the name Time Bandit. Anybody ever see the movie, The Time Bandits? Hey, there we go. One, two, me, that's it. Okay. Time Bandits is a 1981 film written and directed by Terry Gilliam of Monty Python fame about a boy who's taken on a wild adventure by a group of little people who sail a ship through time and space. As long as this wind keeps up, nothing can go wrong. The ship featured in the movie is the very same one we're sailing on now. It was used as a set piece in the film and was renamed after its foray on the silver screen. But as she sails around the lake today, the restored Time Bandit is fully decked out like a pirate ship, painted black with red and white accents, a few skeletons tied to the shrouds, those are the rope ladders that lead up the masts, and a flag that says, time flies when having rum. Captain John is also decked out in pirate gear. On board this swashbuckling vessel today are some families with kids, a group of teenage Girl Scouts on a trip, and Shannon and Steve, who are celebrating. It's our 25th wedding anniversary, and, I, and pirates are my thing, and I told my husband that I needed to get on the pirate ship. As Captain John sails us around the scenic western half of the lake, he talks about the ecology and history of the area and points out places of interest. During Prohibition, back in the late teens and into the early 30s. Like the town's old speakeasy. It was called the Zebra House. It was painted black and white on the outside, black and white stripes on the inside, in the zebra room. And of course, and celebrity vacation the, uh, homes. Anybody here, here ever enjoy uh, Beavis and his buddy? Like Mike Judge's house. He's the creator of Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill. Or the truly massive house of the guy who invented bubble wrap. I think bubble wrap's been good to him. What do you think? The most exciting of these comes when we stop at Mel Blank's house. You know, Mel Blank. How about Bugs Bunny? Yeah, okay. Well, the guy that did the Bugs Bunny voice, but he also did about 1,500 different voices. His nickname was Man of a Thousand Voices. And what's up, Doc? Well, one of the strangest things I... After Mel died, his son Noel Blank took over doing some of the Looney Tunes voices, and he still vacations at this house. So he's going to come out like his dad used to, because his dad used to come out here. Captain John positions the ship in the small cove near the house, fighting against some strong winds. And out comes Noel onto the back deck with a megaphone. Hey, Bugs Bunny, we're going to have to make a pass with the wind. <laughs> <laughs> the other passengers giggle with delight at hearing the voice. As we sail on, it's back to the pirate-centric entertainment, like handheld cannon fire, cheesy pirate jokes. What kind of cookies are a pirate's favorite cookie? That would be Chips Ahoy, very good. And a chance for the kids aboard to steer the ship. When Captain John delivers his passengers safely at the dock after our 90-minute tour on Big Bear's calm waters, I'm really feeling like a sailor's life is for me. 
Did you have fun? Yes, I had lots of fun. It's great. We'll definitely come back. Oh yeah, we had a good time. What was your favorite part? The Bugs Bunny voice. It was really fun, and yeah, it really it's, it's cool. great for yeah. kids, because yeah. there's a lot of stuff to do. The kids really liked it. Yeah. The little kids. The kids, us. The, the little <laughs> kids did. If you're in the mood for a pirate excursion, the Time Bandit sails from Holloway's Marina, April 1st through November 1st. For the California Report, I'm Amanda Font in Big Bear Lake. And that's it for our show this week. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Susie Racho is our producer-director, and our engineer is Brendan Willard. We welcome Jessica Carissa as our new intern this week. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.